This podcast has been underwritten by Cape Cod Healthcare because investing in the arts creates a healthier community. Welcome to the Creative Exchange Podcast, a series of conversations with Cape Cod creatives. This project is a collaboration between the Arts Foundation of Cape Cod and Provincetown Community Television. Recorded here at the Night Owl Recording Studio at the Cultural Center of Cape Cod in Yarmouth. Welcome to the Creative Exchange Podcast. I'm Amy Davies, the Executive Director of Provincetown Community Television. And I'm Julie Wake, the Executive Director of the Arts Foundation of Cape Cod. Today we're talking with Gregory Hisjack, curator of the Edward Gorey House in Yarmouth Port here on Cape Cod, as well as an incredible, prolific artist in so many different areas in his own right. Since 2014, Gregory Hisjack has been creating new exhibits for the Edward Gorey House, where he resides with his wife, Rachel. Hisjack is also a playwright, poet, musician, and book artist, receiving numerous awards, including a Mass Cultural Fellowship in playwriting in 2015. Welcome, Gregory. Nice to be here. Yeah, so nice to have you. I'm really excited to learn how Gregory weaves his own uh, work as an artist with his opportunity to live in one of the most infamous houses on Cape Cod, the <laughs> Edward Gorey House. Uh, so I, I'm excited to hear, like, what's that like? Right, and living a completely creative life, it sounds like. Completely. Completely creative. <laughs> completely creative. <laughs> And, well, and as we were talking, also uh, running an organization, a small organization, so maybe. And it's also, it's also the nuts and bolts of uh, maintaining an almost 200-year-old house as well, which, wow. which involves gutter cleaning as well. And uh, I'm a world-famous cleaner of gutters and chaser of raccoons and duster and polisher and bathroom cleaner. I do all these things in a, in a capacity there. So let's talk about, first of all, running what I would, and you can agree or disagree with this, but what I would classify as a, a small museum with international appeal. And so it's a physically a, a small, I guess if you're cleaning the gutters, maybe it doesn't seem quite as small, Pretty but much. physically a smallish museum, but definitely uh, you must draw people from all over the world. Yeah, it's a, it's a destination for a lot of people. But then just when you start to feel cocky that you're really running something special and, and international, you'll get people walking in who thought it was a Christmas tree shop or something like that. You know? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and you treat them all the same. So it always, it always deflates your ego when people come in and have, I have no idea who this person is. Or, really? or I was dragged here by this person. You know? And so you have to win those people over. And uh, we do. Cause we, sure. we We've set the museum up very accessibly. You can get it, and it, it hits you at a lot of different levels. And so we tend to capture a lot of people. Uh, those who leave shaking their head quickly, not getting it, were, are few. You know, very few people mm -hmm. walk out mystified. Mm -hmm. I've been to the museum recently, and I brought my two small children, and it, it just when they're like, I, I want to, we're in a museum, I want to go, I want to go, and then they, something catches their eye and it's like either like a little creepy or, <laughs> or some something engaging or a photograph and um so i it, it's really a cool place to go if you've never been definitely and i the last time i went i was surprised at how 
much Edward Gorey was like in my life growing up, mm. you know, because there was in the 70s, mm-hmm. the, the opening for the PBS show. But what really made me stop was I remember there's a library stamp thing. If you read so many books, you get it. And I remember filling that out when I was a kid, going <laughs> to the library and getting my stamps. I think it's a dinosaur, if I remember correctly. Mm. And so it was just how... How I'm going to use the word, yeah, and just how pervasive his art was during that time. There's a lot of aha moments that could happen at at the museum. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody when they get to the back room, they go, "Ah, there's the PBS mystery is playing," and it took a lot of coaxing to get WGBH to allow us to do that. So thank you, WGBH. (laughs) Uh, But people go back and go, "Oh, him, Mm -hmm. right?" And the lady on the on the stone uh, Mm -hmm. moaning for people who are younger. For people whose parents watched PBS Mystery, and they never did, they get to a little shelf that's full of John Belair's books, which are young adult mysteries. And they go, oh, that guy. Yeah. I love those covers and interior illustrations. He did 20 books for this guy. Mm-hmm. I wasn't even aware of that. I'm mm-hmm. kind of too old for that, you know. But there was a whole, whole, whole group of people who were reading those in the 80s, late 80s, mid mm-hmm. to late, and through the 90s, and they know Edward Gorey only as that. There are people who went to New York City Ballet. They only know him as yeah. that man in the fur coat who went to every production, <laughs> every performance of every production, sitting in the same seat, you know, yeah. having holding court in the lobby during intermission. You know, there's, it's um, people who stumble upon this whole series of paperbacks, his first job that he did for Anchor Doubleday uh, in New York in the early 50s, and he did dozens and dozens of covers. And people react to those. They remember them from either high school or from college courses or... They, they've had them for years. They're really nicely made paperbacks, of mm. classics and reprints of classics. Edward did the covers to them. It was his first job, almost out of the blue, becoming an illustrator. Mm. And those are, those are prolific. They're everywhere. And so there's a lot of people who see those mm. as well. So tell us how, like, what attracted you to this position? And I'm, I'm just really curious, how did you find yourself here on the Cape? Because you are a working artist. So tell us how you got here. Let's see. Where do I? I'll, I'll work backwards. I didn't really think about the Gory House as a as a dream job. It just <laughs> was. Uh, it was offered to me uh, primarily because I had the ability to lift fifty pounds, <laughs> and and I didn't seem to have any overt drug problems. Those were the two prerequisites <laughs> for getting a job. Welcome on to the Cape Cod. Ca- uh, on the yeah. Cape. <laughs> And uh, uh, I was uh, uh, Lauren Walk, good friend of mine, Lauren Walk here, and a good friend of mine, David Keene, both directors at different arts organizations yeah, on the Cape, yeah. were both asked by the director of the house if they knew of somebody. And I guess they both knew that I was somewhat underemployed at the time, this is 19, uh, 2013. And so I was recommended. And I'd been to the house once before. You know, and, and it's, I, you, you go through it once, and it's like, okay, I've seen that, like most people on the Cape. Oh, I went there once. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, they don't realize that it changes every year. Uh, but I got a job as an assistant curator and then quickly took over all the exhibits and then quickly kind of took over a lot of the other aspects of the house. So that's how you, I got the job. I wish it was a more exciting, spicy story. <laughs> but it's, but you live there, right? That came, and, more, and then... <laughs> Four years later, I, as, okay. uh, kind of in lieu of a salary increase, I, the house needed someone to live there. And it actually became, yeah. it seemed neglected and lonely. And it was actually, security-wise, it was safer to have somebody there mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. Rather, you know, so uh, we did that. And it, 
just seemed like a lot of space that needed somebody living in. And so he did it. What's and, it like? Uh, um, it's a big rambling house with no right angles. <laughs> and if you put a round object on the floor, it'll roll for days. <laughs> uh, a lot of that has to do with the settling of the house, of course. You know, it's, it's from the 1820s it started. And uh, a lot of it has to do with where Edward stacked his books at the time. <laughs> he had 26,000 books in the house at the time of his death. And we know it's 26,000 because the San Diego State has been cataloging them. They took them all away several years ago. And uh, they're, at, they're at that number right now and, uh, and it's ongoing. Wow. So uh, that many books. And, of course, you don't have bookshelves. So that many books, you have stacks that right. are dozens of books deep. And so were those, and we've seen pictures of how that looked. And sure enough, where those stacks of books are, there's, um, there's uh, what's the word, concavity to the floors, shall we say. Mm-hmm. There's like permanent indentations here and there uh, where books used to be. And, you know, it has a series of possible ghosts or just old house sounds. You never know mm-hmm. exactly what it is. There's cats running around that could be mistaken for ghost sounds. Uh, <laughs> it's a lovely house. It, it likes people living in it. You know, we play music in it, and it, it feels, it's nice. It has a, f- a friendly vibe. You know, it, it, it feels like a lot of people lived there for a long time who enjoyed living there. It was in the, when it was under the ownership of the uh, uh, Simpkins family, mm-hmm. and they had it for three generations. Mm. Uh, it was always a summer house. Mm. Uh, and so... It always had that. Probably very few people died there, you know. Probably mm-hmm. some people were born there, but mm-hmm. uh, it it always has this 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 uh, kind of lightness to it, and it's very bright. It was held by Edward knocking down several walls within it um, to make it brighter. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, let's see. And There's more you, parts of that question, yeah. weren't there? Um, how did you how did you find yourself to the cake? I had the ability to lift 50-pound boxes. <laughs> <laughs> but where'd you come from? <laughs> well, I, I moved from Seattle okay. in 2005. This had given birth to our daughter. This was previous marriage. Uh, and my daughter Ava was born. And uh, a couple things coincided. We were, we were just tired of the city. It had grown expensive and big and kind of unfriendly. Uh, and we did everything we needed to do there. It was a really, really great place. Mm-hmm. I, it started me off on a trajectory that... I had no idea what happened, which was writing and uh, performing and writing for the stage. These, all, all these things kind of coalesced mm-hmm. in Seattle. And uh, my background there was I was doing, I began as a poet. That turned into a performance poet. And I toured as a slam poet for many years. Uh, I was a book artist. I started putting out a zine, as people in Seattle do in the 90s. <laughs> and it was... And, and Portland too, and you know, and three other places. But you know, a zine being a small, mm-hmm. self-produced thing, uh, magazine, and that got me started writing for that, and then that got transferred to the stage frequently, and then permanently kind of moved to the stage. But I was doing all these things, and on top of that, I had a day job, which was graphic design, mm-hmm. and art direction, and book design, and so we left. And I had all these things under my belt, and uh, these were all things when uh, the Gory House was looking for somebody, and I showed up, and I had the writing skills that they needed. Mm. And I was a very fastidiously clean person, something they also needed very much there. <laughs> and, but I also had, um, I never did exhibit design, but I had graphic design sensibilities and dimensional design, because the magazine, the zine that I put together, which was called, called Farm Pulp, 
was a very dimensional book art piece. It was it opened mm. uh, in many ways, shapes and forms, and had different size papers and something like a National Geographic that had these surprise foldouts. And mm-hmm. Because it was handmade, I could do these to an extent and get away with producing 300 of them, you know, or mm-hmm. so. And I did. Uh, 40-something issues of that. So that was a lot of experience. And mm-hmm. and and as I've worked with Edward, I've really discovered he was doing a lot of the same things. His, I, he, I refer to Edward when people ask what he is. You can say author or illustrator or set designer or custom designer, whatever you want to do, but he's mostly a book artist. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's also a philosopher and a thinker and a, you know, a humanist. But uh, uh, his ability to play with books and stretched the idea of a book endlessly amazes me. And some of them are very silly. But then some of them are, are really intricate thoughts on how books work and the relationship of the book and the reader and the book and the author. Some of the books don't open without, without breaking them apart because they're tiny and they're this thick <laughs> and they're this size. And if you were to um, open them up, the binding would crack and all the pages would fall to the floor. Some of them open in different directions and the pages go flip in different directions so you can have an exquisite corpse and change the drawing or change the text, which is a really wonderful book. I forget what it's called. They all have French names, those two books. But there's one where there it's the three sections that move independently, and so you keep changing up the story, uh, ver- which is very much like his shuffled story deck, which is a deck of stories, story sentences that you lay out in any order, and they form the own, their own ridiculous Allegoriesque story, you know. So the more I look at these, oh, and it goes on and on. I can go on yeah. and on and on. The nursery freeze, which is really not really a book, but a performance. He was really playing with books, and the more I've been working there, I go, oh, I like this guy. <laughs> you know, it ex- yeah. it explains a lot of his books, and it makes a lot of them even more cryptic. He's not totally explainable, but mm. I, I liked his process of he was endlessly exploring uh, the idea of a book, and 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 how. You relate to the book and the idea of the author and the author's relationship to the reader. He messes with that a lot, too. Mm. I find it very interesting and inspiring. I was looking at, um, you wrote a book back in 2012, right? Called Par- Parts and Labor? That's right, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, <laughs> and. It sounds so important. That was, it was. <laughs> There was a let's be let's be frank here. Okay. There was a collection of poems and a short yeah. play that were bundled up by a wonderful man, Patrick Pepper, uh, in uh, Pond Road. Patrick Pepper of Pond Road Press in Truro. Okay. Yeah. So yes, that's right, 2012. Right? Yeah, I was. Um, I thought that was a really interesting combination of things, and uh, you were quoted saying something about the intersection of artists, endeavor, and getting a living. And so can you tell us a little bit more about what that means? Yeah, there's a, that, that, the aspect of uh, <laughs> pragmatism. You know, I've always had that day job, um, which was in you know, doing things that I was sort of interested in and good at, which was design versus the work that I was doing on my own, uh, which was you know, underground press. And mind you, one fed off the other, not just paying rent, mm-hmm. but I was... You know, shamelessly feeding off the equipment of, of the day job. There are a lot of ad agencies in Seattle that no longer exist because 
I photocopied them out of existence. Yeah. <laughs> All right, just thousands and thousands of pieces of 11 by 17 paper. Oh, no. And I feel terrible for that. <laughs> large format printing. No, yeah, <laughs> large format printing and, and lots of them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I always liked having the day job uh, um, supporting the, the more creative work. It gave me balance. And whenever I'm in yeah. a position where I don't have a day job and I'm just relying on my wits of sorts, I guess, it doesn't work as well. There's a lot more pressure to it. Uh, a lot of artists will thrive on, will thrive on that. Yeah. You know, but for me, I liked having that basis of, of income coming in. It, and, and then suddenly I have this job, which is a really interesting um, combination of all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is at the expense of, you know, I don't get to write a lot of scripts these days because I'm immersed. Once the exhibit starts formenting in my head, uh, uh, I, I just think about the exhibit themes. Last year, all I thought about was nonsense, you know, instead <laughs> of that. And the year before that, all I thought about was Agatha Christie. You know, and the year before that, I thought about collections. So it's fascinating. Yeah. I have a very structured place where I tend to daydream, depending on what I want the show to look like. And uh, I mean, some, and it's at the expense of other things. But at the same time, I really, I, my personality is in the shows, masquerading as Edward's personality. Uh, mm. I try to do it in a way that he wouldn't roll his eyes and stamp his feet to. You know, so every, right. everything we do is, well, can I, how can I do this that it would look as though Edward did it and that he would at least approve of it? So that's kind of the guiding force yeah. through all that stuff. And so there's a structure kind of in your process. Yeah, there's a structure and there's a timeline, which is very important. Yeah. And, yeah. and there's a motivation, not only because I get paid and salaried to do it, but also because it gets seen by a lot of people. Right. Um, and I, I have done plays that have gotten seen by Lots of people, or a few people, or no people, but <laughs> at least I'm guaranteed that 10,000 people will visit this exhibit. You know, there, there are 10,000 right. people who are reading it, mostly reading it. Uh, some are just doing other scavenger hunts or something like that. But mm-hmm. you know, I can I hear feedback. I can hear people laughing at mm-hmm. a case. <laughs> oh, I can, nice. you know, or they come back and ask, "Who did that?" You know, you get yeah. feedback, and lots of people seeing it. So it's it's rewarding. And then you tear it apart and you do it again the next year. So, <laughs> so what um, what sort of mindset do you get in thinking about what would Edward do? Do mm. you have certain um, a checklist or is it well, different for every exhibit? How, how do it you do It would be that? different for every exhibit. What would what would anger Edward the most? Knowing that – or no, yeah. no, 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 I'm sorry. Uh, what would anger <laughs> – Edward the least, mm-hmm. knowing that there's a museum where he had no idea there would be a museum, very private person. And here oh, suddenly his, okay. the whole first floor of his house is, mm-hmm. is a, a, a muck with people. And the second floor of the house is a muck with me, you know, so, uh, and the, the staff. I, I, I try to think what would, what would please him. And we don't have any fealty to historical accuracy because, in a way, we're not that kind of museum mm-hmm. where anything – particularly accurate, is called for, you know. We'll just... <laughs> so it's creative freedom. Creative freedom. Is encouraged. Artistic <laughs> license. I tried to get the dates right, you know, for a book, but you know, there's yeah. lots of speculation. Yeah. It's, it's very speculative. Exactly what Edward meant in a book, you could ne- you, you're not really allowed to say what he meant because he would say, you know, well, that, that destroys it for everyone else. That's what you get out of it, you know. So, right. so his theory was the least you say what did he say? I'm, I'm trying to paraphrase it, but he goes, the more I say about a book, the, the less 
the less options are le are, are available to mm. the basic reader. So, mm. in some ways, you, tr you try to make the exhibit a little ambiguous and, and free flowing. Mm -hmm. But inevitably, by the time you get to the end, there seems to be a, a there seems to be a, an, an overriding idea that is repeated in riffs, almost like a musical. Mm. It's like you have a little. It's like a composition. Something is hinted at in this case. It is hinted at in this case. It is hinted at on the walls, and you're kind of moving things together. So mm -hmm. sometimes it becomes very musical in the way how you put the themes together. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I work in poetry the same way, where you, you get reoccurring things that come together. Uh, you're kind of painting with words that come up with mm. color, colorization, colorings, things like that. The exhibits tend to have a couple different things going on. One is a very straightforward, oh, here's Edward's collections, or here's Edward's love of Agatha Christie. And then underneath it, I've, over the course of working on it for four months or so, you, you come up with these overriding ideas that you kind of flesh out at the end. Mm. You know, in, in Edward's case, uh, in uh, the, the case of, say, the 2017 exhibit, which is all of Edward's collections, mm -hmm. there's almost no artwork at all. Hmm. It was just things he collected. You know, if he collected water bottles, they were all there in a case. He didn't collect water bottles, but he collected, uh, say, cheese graters. <laughs> and you have them all out on a shelf during most of the years, but when you assemble all the cheese graters, and they're all old and rusted, and you put them in a case, yeah, it's beautiful. Everything's different. When you get all these pliers and you put them in a case, they're all facing the same way with their mouths agape. You know, it looks like a school of fish or a flock of birds, right. which is how he designed. He, yeah, I he was did just that. Say, um, his artwork reflects that. And those the salt images. and pepper, his salt and pepper shakers, which suddenly turn into Lower Manhattan if you arrange right. them on a, yeah. a tray. It, it was one. It was full of silly things, but at the end, you realize he had a um, this Eastern idea going through a lot of his collecting. The idea of wabi sabi, huh. uh, and the idea of imperfect things mm. had more beauty showed more perfection because you can see the imperfections. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the stuff he collected were old, mm -hmm. rotting, deteriorated. He liked bits of driftwood and rusty metal, all sorts of cool things that people yeah. do like. But really, he'd been doing it for decades. And the idea of deterioration and the passage of time started to tell a story. You know, he liked things that told a story. And then at the end, you started putting that together into his drawings um, in that he's dealing with death a lot. In so much of his work, what, but the death was just a metaphor for life. It's almost like, well, the deterioration, the ultimate deterioration, which is death, was a, was a natural, was was the natural function of life. And in seeing the death, it made you realize the life portion. You know, mm -hmm. in other words, the the crack in the vase made that a much more beautiful vase vase mm -hmm. than the <laughs> perfect one. Um, I can go on and on like that. But anyway, so those are things that happen. Say, for mm. instance, Agatha Christie, um, it's all about his relationship with her and how she colored his work. But at the end of it, you realize that he's, he was playing with the idea of how murder mysteries have that relationship to their reader, people who read mysteries a lot. And I'm not one of them. I was just going to ask yeah. you, do you read but, mysteries? Um, sometimes. Yeah, I've never been big on that, but I've had friends that love to read them, and I'm mm -hmm. always amazed. It is such a specific genre yeah. of book and movie. Yeah. Right? That, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And it has a structure to it, and yeah. it, has, it has a very written out structure that, in fact, that mystery writers in England actually wrote out the structure. It was a club. 
of which Agatha Christie was president for many years. And it says, you can't do this, can't do this, can't do this, should do this, should do this. But, of course, rules are made to be broken all <laughs> right, the time. Right, right. But there are people who read it, uh, uh, those, mostly because they like the time period of the really classic ones, mm. you know, that in between the wars, British mm. class mm-hmm. su- uh, structure in place. Mm-hmm. People like going there the same reason they watch Downton Abbey or you know, upstairs, downstairs. Right. And there are people who just like the puzzle aspect of trying to figure yeah. it out. Mm-hmm. I think Edward was both. Okay. He liked he liked that England that didn't exist anymore, if it ever existed. And yeah. he also liked <laughs> he also liked um, uh, trying to figure it out. And so when he does the book, which was the Audrey Gore Legacy uh, mystery, everything was wrong. He just everything <laughs> was was betraying the reader yeah. at every step of the way. And so you realize the whole show was all about his betrayal, not betrayal, it was his uh, relationship with the reader mm-hmm. and that he expected a lot of you as the reader you know, in his books. And that's true for all his mm-hmm. books. It is not a passive situation going through an Edward Gorey book. Mm. It's, it's a very participatory enterprise because the book is all about, the books are all about what isn't said and isn't shown. What is on the page is very beautiful, you know, really beautifully rendered. But those are just like little, um, what's the word, markers. Mm. Everything about the book is in the in between the pages that he doesn't show, mm. and so he leaves it up to the reader. There's no right answer. There's no wrong. You know, there's no correct mm-hmm. course through it. You're just left to uh, work it out, and that drives some people crazy. Some people would never like him for that. <laughs> right. Never, never accept him in their lives. They may like some drawings or get a giggle, but uh, the people who do get it, who do like that, they love, they have a very special relationship with them because it's very collaborative almost. Mm. You know? What is it like, I would imagine every week you encounter someone who just is so overwhelmed <laughs> by being in his space because I feel like his fans mm. are, his really deep fans are very devoted and yeah. so, so what is it like watching people come in? You talked a little bit about people laughing. Or... It's, it's really fun to encounter those people. They come in with tears in their eyes. You know, they're going <laughs> to take off their shoes. And you kind of deflate <laughs> the whole situation, too. You, you know, you're, you're funny, and you, you create the tone and manner of letting them know that this is going to be a very funny enterprise that you're going to be involved in the next hour and a half or whatever. So it's... You make it clear that it's a very comfortable place and that humor is the overriding uh, um, aspect Mm -hmm. that they're going to see through the museum. But sometimes, you know, you visit a place once and you think you've seen it all. But it is so... It's so packed, though. It's always packed. It and and I love the informalness of it. Like, mm-hmm. it is very comfortable when you go in there. I, I mean, object-wise. Yeah. You know, I don't think that you can see it all, probably, in one Right. No, it's very term. dense. It's a dense yeah. piece of fruitcake yes. for a museum. <laughs> and, and on top of that, we have the scavenger hunt going through it, which is a brilliant idea that the director had years ago uh, to put up 26 gastrochrom tinies. Hmm. about all through the museum, which is A is for Amy, who fell down the stairs. That's well, me. Amy. And it's so likely. Yeah. <laughs> well, you'll find yourself there in the back yes. stairs. B is for yeah. Basil. It goes all the way to Z is for Zilla, who drank too much gin. You know, Do you a, know the whole alphabet? 
Probably. Oh, my God. But I'm not going to do it. (laughs) Oddly enough, a lot of people learned their alphabet from that book, which is funny for a book that was a parody. It came out 50 uh, something years ago. 1963 it came out. Wow. And it was, how would you even market this book? Right. It's not, where would you put it in a bookshop? If you had a bookshop and had this book or any of Edward's books, where would you put it? Is it a kid's book? No. Right, um, right. Is it art book? Maybe. Is it humor? Maybe. Yeah. It's, you know, at the Gotham Book Mart in New York, they kind of solved the problem by having it, having Edward stuff on a movable cart that <laughs> went around, and they had oh, it at I the uh, they had it at the cashier's little books. It was like yeah. a but. Uh, is it uh, any scarier than Bambi though? I mean, when you think about it, I think no. this is a little more genteel <laughs> yeah. than some of those Disney movies. It is. It's, it's it's much better. In Bambi, you have empathy for Bambi and for his mom because you've seen them, whereas when you come to the house. We point out some poor character whose feet are sticking out from under the rug. <laughs> yes. And you go, oh, and that's George. And you, in the, in, the, in the book, does the same thing. All of Edward's work does the same thing, the way he draws uh, in kind of a naive way. He draws mm-hmm. faces. They don't show emotion ever. There's no emotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and no close-ups either. Mm-hmm. Everything is three-quarter view. We can come back to that later. But what he does very carefully, or obviously, is he doesn't allow you to have any empathy with these poor kids or with almost anyone mm-hmm. else in his books. And so you're able to laugh at it. It's like a, it's a nature of nonsense is to kind of make you not react properly to terrible things that happen. And so here you have these 26 kids, and you would think that nobody in this day and age would be laugh snickering at 26 dead kids, but you do, and you do immediately. Um, if you're like, and I explain to people who come in with young kids, I look at the child and I'll figure their age, and I'll tell them, you know, if they're not quite seven, they still haven't had all the empathy kicked from them yet, and so they won't enjoy this. But unless they have an older brother, an older sibling, in yep. which case they will enjoy it, or their parents enjoy it, or mm-hmm. sometimes you'll get a six-year-old come in and they learn their alphabet with the book. But mostly, it's at the age of seven or eight, say that that kids will come in and love it because they know that it's wrong, and yes. it, and it's unsettling to their parents, and so that gives it a special deliciousness, I guess. Edward was no child psychologist. He wasn't around children. (laughs) Hardly ever in his life except for his cousin's uh, uh, son, Ken, who's about my age. Now, he he didn't kill him. They hung out together quite nice. He was kind of Uncle Ted. But yet, Edward inadvertently discovered irony existed in children, you know, long before before, uh, almost any other children's book writer or illustrator did. Mm -hmm. You know, before that, it was kind of Dick and Jane books. Mm-hmm. You know, look, 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 see, see, see. And then it changed. Edward was instrumental, not with the Gastricum Tinies, but first with um, The Doubtful Guest, mm. which is a famous book of his from 56. And that kind of changed children's literature because that was dark. Nobody dies in it. But it's this character who comes into this house and totally disrupts this very state household. And, of course, I also just described The Cat in the Hat, which also right. came, which came out the same year. They're both very influential books. They, they're, you know, Cat in the Head is kind of this communist, uh, um, uh, anarchist character who comes into the household. The Doubtful Guest is just its disruptive influence that everybody just seems to accept, you know. And they're they're both influential on children's book authors and illustrators like Maurice Sendak and people like that. Worked off of those books as a template in a way, and so it was a whole new generation of um, children's books writers. Has living and working in the house influenced your work at all? Yes. 
and it has. And right now, I would say I'm just working on, I just write poetry. I don't really know what to do with. I just kind of write it and rewrite it and rewrite it and go through a lot of paper. But I've, I've learned to embrace uh, ambi ambiguity a lot more. You know, I'm not so concerned about telling stories because as I look through pieces of mine that actually have a very concrete story, I get bored mm. reading them because there's no place for it to go. There is, of course, but to me, telling the story too clearly doesn't give the reader anything to do, you know? And so I find that um, um, taking out a lot in a poem, and a poem is never more than a page long in very mm -hmm. short sentences, I like because <laughs> I don't like using punctuation, so I just use short sentences. I find that the more I take out, the better the poem is, which is always true. Mm. So inevitably, the best poem would be no poem whatsoever. It would be a blank, <laughs> it would be a blank piece of paper, maybe with a title, but that might destroy, destroy it too. But I've, I found the ambiguity and leaving coloring in there that other people will go different places. And again, it might drive some people crazy because it's not a very specific poem anymore. It hints at things, but then it changes and moves somewhere else. I find that to be really specific too. Uh, working with Edward's work and mm. kind of his his approach to work. And so, I mean, were you expecting that when you when you got here? I mean, I, maybe we should talk about your workout because it seems to be the fifty pounds seems to be the <laughs> over overwhelming theme. Sometimes but, more, sometimes <laughs> less. Of course. When um, when you came here, were you thinking that this might change my life, my the direction of my work, or is this a nice surprise for you? That's a good question. I don't know. It was an interesting job that I really hadn't had in a long time because it was asking me to use all my faculties, <laughs> including my biceps, you know, and legs <laughs> and, and wits, but also and, and people skills. I'm not mm -hmm. particularly gregarious um, when I'm on my own. I'm pretty much, you know, a dour, quiet person. And then suddenly I'm, this museum surprised me because I was put in the you know, at the door, mm -hmm. literally, you know, to greet people, you know, and to set mm -hmm. the tone and manner. That was surprising. That was a big change. I realized I could have been a very good waiter somewhere <laughs> at, a, at a very expensive restaurant, maybe. Um, uh, I'm, like, I'm, I'm veering away from the question here, but I, I had no idea, but suddenly I was writing, and I enjoyed, I enjoyed the writing that I was doing for the house. I had this ability to absorb, because I was quite old when I started. You know, I wasn't young. I was in my 50s already. And uh, I didn't really feel like I had a lot of uh, um, open, valuable memory left in, in, in my head. And it's funny, Edward's work f just fit in there really hmm. easily and automatically. His timeline, draconology, all these things I absorbed really fast. So apparently I was, hmm. I was, uh, um, what's the word? I was just uh, susceptible to getting that information, and, and I, I was surprised at how much I filled, uh, how much of his work I filled my head with, and how much of it is organized in there, so I can play. They can play off each other. You think, oh, that's like this book. Yeah. Oh, and that's like this book. Or I'll open a book I've never given much thought to, and go, oh, that's the something. You know, that that's tying in with this, or that name on that license plate goes with. He's, he's, you know, I, yeah. did, I didn't realize I had all this uh, spare problem-solving space in my head. You're almost doing like archival it work is. kind of by accident, yeah. right? It is, and yeah. I don't have access 
to the actual archives, mm -hmm. though I am going there next month, hopefully, if all goes well. They've just really recently mm. opened up the archives mm. to us, uh, and has, there's been a change in management, shall we say, to the Edward Gorey Charitable Trust. That's a group that Edward started when he was alive, and that's where all his artwork is located in the trust, which is in the storage room in Manhattan, and uh, you know, it's boxes and boxes of his artwork. And then the, the proceeds from that go through the trust, and it gets filtered to animal welfare groups all yeah, over the world, which is very ask nice. You about that. Yeah. And and so I'm going to get to go in there and actually look at some stuff. I'm not going to be opening up boxes that haven't been opened before. But okay. I'm going to be there with other people uh -huh. going through stuff. But I'm very excited to see things that I haven't seen before. And next year's show is going to be about things that I haven't seen before. We're going through all those notebooks. Mm. And the show, hopefully, will be formed from uh, looking at dozens or so of sketchbooks and notebooks and mm. some unpublished drafts of books mm -hmm. that haven't ever seen the light of day before. So I don't know what the big picture of that will be, what the subtext will be. Yeah. I don't know. We'll find That's out. Exciting, that yeah, that is exciting, that process. How does, so the, so the mission of the Edward Gorey House here in Yarmouthport, where do you all see it going? Boy, that's, uh, I should have a really pat answer for that. <laughs> of course, the mission, because it, it's, it has changed over the years, and I think the mission to museums yeah. should. We're a very fluid museum. Yeah. I mean, we have an obligation to promote animal welfare. That was one of the defining aspects of opening up the house, and a lot of our monies go to that. But to be honest, we don't have that much cooperation with animal welfare groups on the Cape, okay. at least as much as we used to. Um, it's become the overriding mission is to expose people to Edward's work and a vast body of work and to, ask and, and to illuminate a different aspect every year. Mm -hmm. So every year you come back, the house is different, yeah. almost as though the person the house is about is a different person. You know, it would, right. Ideally, I would love to move to the point where it was a totally different person every time you went in there and a totally <laughs> different story. And as I say, we don't really have much concern with accuracy or anything like that, but I don't know I can go that far <laughs> with, you know, like if 2021 found Edward as a scrimshaw artist, you know, and right. just totally make up everything. He would love that. That's exactly what he would want to have, but I think... Oh, that's funny. We would betray people in doing that. But nonetheless, we keep moving Edward in not places he wouldn't go, but just finding little nooks, nick, nicks, what's the word, uh, niches uh, mm. that uh, uh, people had never thought about before. And mm. Almost never run out of things. Like what is his relationship with dance, for mm. instance, you know, or, or what, is his what is that relationship with animals? What is yeah. that relationship with cats? What's that relationship with fur? What is it with you in TV? What is it with you in film? What is it with you in silent movies? And you mentioned costume design. And costume can, design, can yeah. Can you tell us what's the history behind that? He formed a poet's theater in Boston in the early 50s, right after he graduated in, from Harvard in 50. Him and John Charity and uh, uh, all sorts of people whose names I'm, aren't going to come to me right, right now uh, were working on the poet's theater. It was like a text-based uh, theater group, very interesting. Uh, but he was nonetheless doing some scri uh, some scripts. He was doing set design and doing a lot of costume design uh, for that. In New York, after when he, when he got involved in Dracula, which he did the costume design for, and which he won a Tony Award for, which allowed him to buy the house in Yarmouthport, uh, he was doing uh, f uh, costume design for lots of other productions as well. None of them were as famous or, or quite as Broadway-ish 
uh, production-wise as, as Dracula. But he was doing some, some Gilbert and Sullivan and things like that, and uh, he was just fascinated by it. He could have been a great... He could have been a great lot of things. He is a great <laughs> thing. One of the things, like, he... he, he could have been just a you know a costume designer. Yeah. If that was the direction that he took and stayed with that, he would have been um, a great critic. He would have been just a great cultural critic. Uh-huh. You know, talking about art and film and movements and tying it all together. Just so many places he could have gone. When did he become profitable? When did he start making money off of his art and his creativity? Well, he was pragmatic, Yep. which is why I like him so much. We, okay. Yeah, it's because he was a pragmatic artist <laughs> who had his day job, which was doing illustration. Okay. Which is what his actual artwork was, too. But he was doing illustration for any number of magazines or book publishers, um, everything, you know, children's book design, um, Anchor Doubleday, um, Spots for National Lampoon, for Holiday Magazine, for Esquire Magazine, for Playboy, for who else? TV Guide. He didn't say no. So he had money coming in. He was always comfortable. Yeah. He was doing okay. And he had rent control in New York and uh, a little studio apartment. And so he got by, and his needs were simple, cat food and ballet (laughs) tickets. Uh, but he started making money the first time with um, Amphigori, which is an anthology of his first 15 books. Mm. I think it came out in 70, I'll make up a date, early 70s. I say 71, okay. maybe 70. And to imagine you've been working, doing your own books now for almost 20 years, mm. and the first one that sells, you know, over 500 copies is this <laughs> anthology of your work all put together. Um, you know, had the gastrochemtines. The first 15 books are all in there, I believe. And that did really well. It was uh, it's terribly printed. It's really ugly. It's, it's a terribly produced book. But nonetheless, it, it, it sold a lot. And it got on a bestseller list for um, like a coffee table book, like an art book. Yeah. It, was, it, got, it got up there, you know, uh, yeah. in, in the sales. And that's where he made a lot of money. Uh, that he probably made, you know, Tens of thousands of dollars. <laughs> right. Tens of thousands of dollars came in, in addition to his to his freelance. And then when Dracula came out, uh, Dracula, as I said, bought the house yeah. in Yarmouth Port. And, and at that point, he was doing pretty good. Edward didn't merchandise himself. He was reluctant huh. to do that. He didn't merchandise, merchandise himself until his business associates talked him into it. In the late 80s, it was only then that he like put his stuff to use in calendars and cards and, and things like that. And that's when the money really did start to come in at that point, when he started getting talked into putting out a product. So once he finally fell into that mindset, he resisted it for many decades. But finally, in the late 80s, mm-hmm. you know, he's getting into his 60s, and he goes, oh, sure, let's do it. Because mm. the house was expensive, mm. all right? Mm-hmm. He had... <laughs> the royalties were enough to buy the house in the Yarmouth port, but not enough to fix it up. Because right. as, as I said, it was a summer house. It had no heat, he discovered, once he got inside the house. <laughs> it had no heat whatsoever. It just had a couple fireplaces. And it didn't have any working toilets. It didn't have oil, uh, um, electricity yeah. predating 1919. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. So he sunk. He needed money coming in to sink, to sink into the house. It was a bit of a white elephant. What was his uh, relationship 
to Cape Cod. Did Cape Cod inform his work at all? I mean, I haven't really seen that in the in the no, work that I know of. But not really, just curious if um, what was the attraction to Yarmouth Port and uh, besides well, the house? The physical reason was that he had a family who lived here. Okay, his cousins, and he's an only child, uh, and he grew up as an only child. Uh, and then grew up with divorced parents, and his mom introduced him to her side of the family, the Garveys, who lived here, summered here on the Cape. Okay. Uh, and he started staying with them when he started going to Harvard in 46. He'd come here. He never went back to Chicago, which is okay. where he was from. He came here. He had two cousins, uh, uh, Ski and Eleanor, who were about his age. Ski was about 10 years younger. Uh, but he started spending the summers there. And then when he moved to New York... The same thing, he would come to visit them periodically. When he became a freelancer, when he gave up having the salaried job, the day job, and was just a freelance person, he ended up coming to the Cape for long periods of time. Mm. Uh, it's, and the only thing that dictated when he wasn't here was the New York City Ballet. Mm. As soon as they closed for the season, uh, he'd pack up his cats and come to the house in Barnstable. And then the day before the season opened, he'd pack up the cats and go down to New York, and he'd stay here. So he was staying here for much of the year uh, at their house. He had the third-floor attic, which looks out over Barnstable Harbor. And uh, so he knew the Cape really well. He did all the things that people on the Cape do. He had favorite restaurants, and he went to the (laughs) drive-in when when the drive-in was still in Hyannis. He knew the beaches. He knew the cemeteries. Yeah. You know, so he was a Cape Cod person. You don't see it in his work at all. Yeah. There's one book, uh, The Deranged Cousins, which is about him and his cousins, which <laughs> is all about it's it's total work of non-fiction. Uh, uh, they end up all killing each other, but it, it is a very funny <laughs> book about walking <laughs> along the shore and finding these things, mm. like a door, a bed slot, and a doorknob, and a bottle of vanilla they found on the mm. vanilla extract mm. they find on the beach and they murder each other over them <laughs> <laughs> obviously based on some fact up to a point and then right. it's not you know so well we're lucky enough that we still have a few months in your season yes so people can come until january you said up until december 29th is our last day i believe a Sunday, and then we close the doors on that exhibit, mm-hmm. never to be seen again. And we'll reopen, um, <laughs> unless we make a catalog, in which case you can look through the catalog and see it. We'll reopen the second week of April in 2020. All right, and we'll that? find out what your research yeah. has yielded for yeah. for the new exhibit. That's I'm exciting. As curious as you are <laughs> to see what it's yeah, going to be. Exciting. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you again to today's guest, Gregory Hisjack, curator of the Edward Gorey House in Yarmouthport. For this episode of the Creative Exchange Podcast, I'm Amy Davies, Executive Director of Provincetown Community Television. And I'm Julie Wake, Executive Director of the Arts Foundation of Cape Cod. Until next time, arts matter. Support for the Creative Exchange Podcast is made possible by Delbrook JKS. Music for the Creative Exchange podcast is the work of Jordan Renzi. Produced in association with Billingsgate Records by Jordan Renzi and Andrew Staker at Big Red Studios in Wellfleet. The Creative Exchange podcast is brought to you by the Arts Foundation of Cape Cod, Provincetown Community Television, and the Cultural Center of Cape Cod in South Yarmouth. In the desert.
So.